You're listening to a recent sermon from a Covenant Church worship experience. For more information, you can find us online at covenantchurch.us. Don't all religions believe pretty much the same thing? This message is from part four of our series, Synonym, where we are discussing the similarities and the differences between Catholicism, Mormonism, Islam, and naturalistic relativism. And now here is our lead pastor, Pastor Travis Davenport. Good morning and welcome to Covenant Church. My name is Travis and I serve as the lead pastor here. It's awesome to have you with us this morning. Listen, we're wrapping up uh, our final week, our final week in this series that we've called Synonym. And we've been asking this question. The question is, do we all believe pretty much the same thing? And it's kind of a statement too. We all believe pretty much the same thing, right? And so we've discussed a couple different major religions. We've talked about Catholicism. We've talked about Islam. Uh, Last week we talked about Mormonism. Today we're going to be speaking about relativism. We're also going to be talking a little bit about universalism. And, And so these may be some terms for you that maybe you're not really used to. Maybe these are some terms that you haven't really heard or maybe you have, but you're not exactly sure what they are. And so we're going to be talking about them and uh, we're going to be talking about them in comparison to Christianity. So we're going to jump right in this morning. Uh, so the whole idea, synonym, universalism, relativism, Christianity, do we all believe the same thing? Can we all get along? First off, we want to jump here and this is the planet of relativism. Relativism is, is the world in which, which we're looking at right here. And what you have to understand about relativism is that at, at its core, relativism says we can coexist. Now, now, maybe you've seen this bumper sticker before. Maybe you've seen it on a car. Maybe you've seen it on somebody's window. I don't know. But, but it's kind of a famous bumper sticker. Um, but relativism says that it's based on the idea that everyone from every religion should actually be able to do more than just get along. They should be able to, they should be able to affirm other religions as well. So it's not that they just get along, it's that they actually coexist. They affirm other religions as well. Um, to give you a couple examples of this, uh, I've got some, a couple famous people that have made some different quotes. You see Bono there, and Bono has this famous quote where he says, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, all true. He actually says this twice in a row, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, all true. Another person we have here, there's Oprah. And Oprah has a quote where she says, you can't possibly believe that Jesus is the only way to God. I believe he is, quote, a way, but there are so many ways, it's ridiculous to think anything else. So at the heart of uh, relativism is this idea that we can all exist together, we can all coexist together, and that we can more than coexist, we can affirm uh, other religions as true. Um, Scholars generally agree that the first relativist um, was the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras. You see a picture of him there in 490 B.C., And here's a quote, Plato quotes Protagoras, and he says this, The way things appear to me, in that way they exist for me. And the way things appear to you, in that way they exist for you. So I know that might sound a little bit confusing, but what he's saying here is that how I see things, that's what makes reality for me. And how you see things, that's what makes reality 
for you. So your reality may be real to you and my reality may be real to me, but we can have different type of realities and still be in the same type of realm. It's, it's difficult to understand. I understand, I understand that. Um, relativism makes a couple uh, claims that I want us to look at real quick. One of the first claims it makes is that morality is neutral. Morality is neutral. And in fact, even more than being neutral, um, morality changes. Morality is dictated um, by the time, by the culture, uh, by the people, um, by the common ethical code. Morality is not something that is, that is merely static. Um, it's something that shifts and change and fluctuates. And so you have to understand that it's, it's, it can move and it moves very f frequently and it can shift. Next is um, the kind of the famous quote here is you need to decide what's right for you. And so relativism will tell you, hey, listen, listen, I don't want to tell you what to do. You need to do what's right for you. So do what's right for you. I'm going to do what's right for me. Right. And that's one of the famous kind of stances that a relativist will take. Next is as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. So you can do what you want to do. And I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's truth. Okay? And it's, and it's okay. It's, it's fine. As long as you don't hurt anybody in your reality, in your truth, in your, in your ways, in your religion, then it's fine. A big, big, um, big emphasis on human decency in this mindset, in this understanding, and in this theology, I guess, if you could call it that. Um, really emphasizing um, people and their feelings and um, making sure people are safe. Um, very ethical, I guess you could say. Next, and here's the big one. One of the claims that relativism has to make is that all truth is relative. And this is where we get this term relativism. Now, basically what that means is that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Now, the odd thing about this is to make an absolute statement um, would be considered wrong to a relativist unless you're making the absolute statement that there's no absolute truth. And then it's, <laughs> right, and then it's commonly accepted. So there's no such thing as absolute truth unless you're talking about the fact that there's no absolute truth, right? So all truth is relative. We saw this earlier um, when, we had, when we had the guy who says, you know, hey, listen, uh, what's true for you is good and what's true for me is good because it's all relative. Truth is subjective. Truth is relative. We also see this, sincerity. If you believe something with a lot of sincerity, right? If you believe that it's true, if you sincerely desire for it to be true, if you sincerely desire for it to be real and long for it enough, if you, if you have sincerity about you, then it is True. Sincerity is one of the marks uh, of, of, a, of a relativist. You have to sincerely and passionately follow after something, and in doing so, you prove its truth. And lastly, I would say this, narrative above reality. Because here's the interesting thing. There are, there are uh, relativists that would call themselves Christians. They'll quantify themselves as Christians. Now, that might be difficult for maybe you or I to understand, but, but they fully adhere to it. Um, 
I read a couple interviews, watched a couple interviews with some different uh, pastors or, or teachers or leaders of different relativistic churches, and they called themselves Christians. And the person who was doing the interview asked them, and said, well, what makes you a Christian? They said, well, I, well, I believe in the narrative of Jesus. They said, well, you don't believe in the story? And I'd say, no, 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 no. It's not that I don't believe in the story of Jesus. It's, it's, just, that the, it's just that the narrative is all that's really important to me. Um, the, fact that, the fact of the matter that I don't believe Jesus actually died and rose again from the grave, that's, that's not important because Jesus' narrative, the narrative of his life is, is what is important because there's so much good morality there, so much good ethical stuff, Right? That, that I can live my life from that, that I can pull truth from that. And so I consider myself a Christian, even though I don't believe Jesus Christ died and rose again for me. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Next, let's examine the, the tree of relativism. Because here we see a, a, a tree, right? Um, and we see that there's fruit on the tree. And what's interesting is, is that, you know, a tree, a healthy fruit tree, or just a, a tree in general, will bear fruit. But the fruit is always dependent upon the roots. And let me explain. If you plant an orange tree, and the roots grow down deep, and those are orange tree roots, what, what kind of fruit are you going to receive if you take care of this, this tree? Oranges, exactly. If you plant an apple tree, what, what kind of fruit are you going to get from an apple tree? Apples, exactly. I know, this is big time, big deep stuff today. The, the understanding is this, you can't plant an apple tree and expect to get oranges. You can't plant an orange tree and expect to get bananas. You can't plant a banana tree, you get the point. You plant a tree, and that tree has specific roots, and those roots help to dictate what type of fruit you will receive. So with that understanding, let's take a look at this relativistic tree. What does the root system look like? Interesting, right? See, as a relativist, you, you literally uh, can have every religion under the sun as your basis, as your, as your foundation. So it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Muslim. It doesn't matter if you're a mystic or a naturalist or, or a Scientologist. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu or Buddhist or, or Wiccan or a Jew or a Taoist. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The, the, what all, the only thing that matters is that you coexist. And so oftentimes, we'll, we'll have, you'll have churches that, that get together and, and a Unitarian type church, and they'll all get together. They'll all be from different backgrounds and religions, and they'll worship together, and they'll all be singing to different gods, right? But they'll be using common language. And they see this as beautiful. They see this as coexisting. Now, they don't, ex they don't believe anything close to the same, but that's not the point. Because the point for them is that all truth is relative. We're all going to end up in the same place when we die anyway. So let's just all worship. And as long as we're sincere about it, as long as we mean it, as long as we're decent with people, as long as we believe in the narrative over the reality, over the story, then everything is going to be fine. But here's the fact of the matter. It's, it's not fine, <laughs> right? It's not okay. It's... it's it doesn't work. An orange tree can't grow 
apples. It, it just can't. And so what happens when you have a root structure like that, your roots dictate the type of fruit that you grow, right? And so what type of fruit does a relativistic tree bear? Well, let's check it out. Poison. Pretty straightforward, right? It's poisonous. In fact, Scripture has this to say. Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 25, it says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness, so that you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. How does this apply to relativism? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how the words of Jesus, which are more than a narrative, right, which was a living person which we believe to be the son of God how, how his words resonate should resonate with, with somebody who is uh, in, into relativism it's because this you work so hard to be a moral person, to look moral, to look ethical, to look like you're coexisting. You work so hard at the outside appearance but Jesus cuts right through that and says you are like a tomb. See back in Jesus' day People were buried in large tombs, maybe in the side of a mountain, in the side of a hill, whatever it might be. And people would come along and they would, they would paint these tombs. They would whitewash them. They would paint them. They, they would color them, whatever it might be, right? Color them with paint. But they smelled horrible. Why do they smell horrible? Because there's dead people inside of tombs, right? What Jesus is saying here is it doesn't matter how good you look on the outside. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how well put together you look because if you don't know Christ, if the inside isn't taken care of, if there's not absolute truth that you're living by, you are dead on the inside. He tells the Pharisees the very same thing here earlier in this passage. He, he, reiterate, he reiterates it later, but first off he talks to them and he says, you're washing the outside of the cup. Now, when I was, when I was growing up, just by way of mentioning, um, one of my chores was to do the dishes. Now, back in the day, we didn't have these fancy things called dishwashers, right? So for us growing up, when, 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 when someone said dishwasher, I was like, yeah, that's me and my brother, right? So, um, yeah. So my mom would say, my dad would say, all right, boys, time to clean off the table. We'd clean them off. And, and uh, one, of, one of the things that I was kind of notorious for was just kind of like turning on the spigot and just like throwing the cup on the outside and, you know what I'm saying, like taking it and washing it and like setting it in. And my, aunt, my mom would always walk over and be like, Travis, you didn't wash the inside of the cup. It's disgusting, right? I'd rather there be smudges on the outside of the cup than like stuff on the inside. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. It's completely and utterly grotesque because the inside is still filthy. Relativism. The inside is what matters to Jesus. In relativism, it's the outside. It's acting like we get along. It's looking like we get along. Relativism. Now, Let's look at this in light of Christianity. Over here you see Christianity. You see this, this beautiful world. There's a little volcano over there. There's some rocket ships getting ready to, to take off. What, what is at the core 
of this worldview? What is at the core of, of this religion? What is at the core of, of Christianity? Well, let's take a look. Ah. At its center, Christianity is based, isn't based rather on a moral idea. Let me just say that again. At, at its core, Christianity isn't based on a moral idea. Rather, Christianity is based on a Messiah named Jesus Christ. Amen? I think we can say amen to that. Amen? Christianity is completely and utterly based on Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there would be no such thing as Christianity. It would just be anity. I don't, I don't even, it, it wouldn't exist. It, it could not be because Jesus Christ is at the center of what it means to be a Christ follower. Look at this verse. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Paul talking to his church in Corinth. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15. Powerful verse that points to Jesus Christ. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And listen to this right here. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, which means pointless and dead. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, which means you are not forgiven. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. It says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What's Paul saying there? He's saying this, if Jesus didn't die and rise again, it's pointless. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. He is at the center of what we do. He is at the center of what we worship. Everything revolves around him. And what's more, Paul goes on to say that if we are following Jesus in vain, that then, then we are to be pitied. We've been, we've been duped because we've wasted our lives. Of course, we believe Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. We believe that he is the Messiah. We believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ that he is God's son. And Jesus Christ is at the center of Christianity. Now Jesus, just like relativism, Jesus makes some claims himself. Let's see what Jesus claims. And let's just focus on one of the things that Jesus claims. One of his claims that he makes, which is I think one of the strongest um, in comparison to relativism. Uh, John 14, six, Jesus says, and we'll just start off with these two words, I am. I love that. We talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that God, when, when asked his name, he just says, I am, right? Yahweh, I, I am. And Moses is like, I, I am what? Just tell them I am sent you. They'll know what that means. And Jesus starts off here by saying, I am. And he goes on to say, I am. Look at the emphatic nature of the. He says, the way. Jesus says, John 14, I am the way. Not a way, not one of the ways, not there's a couple of ways and I might be one of them. My narrative is the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the exclusive way. The way what? The way to get to God. I am the only way there is. He goes on, he says, I am the truth. So what does this mean? Well, it means a couple things. Namely, number one, it means that Jesus not only believes in absolute truth, he actually defines the truth as himself. 
Jesus is so true, he's the definition of truth. You understand that? Not only is he the way to God, he is truth. So we, we see a big conflicting worldview here between relativism and Christianity just in the simple fact that uh, a relativist doesn't believe in any absolute truth and Jesus Christ, the center of Christianity, calls himself the absolute truth. You can see why it might be difficult to coexist uh, in that realm, right? The way, the truth, and Jesus says, I am the life. This is so important. Sometimes I think that we as Christians look at maybe Jesus or a relationship with Jesus as, uh, you know, it's kind of like a parachute, right? Like, I, I, yeah, I prayed, accept Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian now, quote, Christian. And, and why did you do that? Well, I, I just didn't want to go to hell. Listen, accepting Jesus Christ and following after Jesus Christ and, and jumping into Christianity, which Christ is the center of, is not just about after death. Jesus is also the life. And he empowers you to live your life. And he, and he comes and he lives inside of you. Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit taking residence inside of you. So it's not just about what happens after this life is over. It's about what happens now. Jesus empowers you to live now, live life now. He has many teachings, yes, about morality and ethics, but also about discipline, also about uh, submission, also about surrender to God. This is the way of life to Jesus. This is the way of life for a Christian. Jesus is the life. And lastly, Jesus makes this claim. No one gets to the Father except through me. Now, you got to understand about this. Is this, is such a, this is such a controversial verse when it comes to relativism and universalism, as we'll get to in a minute. It's so controversial because Jesus makes this strong claim. Look at here, he says, no one gets to the Father except through me. No one. He doesn't say no one unless you have a different type of a worldview he didn't say, no one, unless you live a good moral life. No, no, no. He says, nobody gets to God unless you come through me. Nobody. Why? Because I'm the way to God. Why? Because I'm the truth from God. Why? Because I am the life. Nobody gets to God except through me. Absolutely, unequivocally, I am the only way. I will continue to be the only way. There's no other way except through me. And so when you talk to a relativist about this, they're like, well, what, 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 I'm a Buddhist though. I thought that was okay. Well, no, no, no. What do you mean? No. You can sincerely believe everything that Buddha taught. You can sincerely believe everything that, that, that is taught in Hinduism and follow the multiple gods. But I'm just telling you, sincerity does not matter when it comes to eternity. Your amount of sincerity and, and how much you believe what you believe has no bearing on your eternal destination in heaven at least. It's dependent upon Jesus Christ and you knowing him and you being in a personal relationship with him. I should say that sincerity has no bearing on an eternal existence in heaven. Next. Now we see the, this tree of Christianity. Christianity also has its roots, right? And I would make this claim as well. It's, it's very simple. Christianity's roots are absolute truth. 
Why? Because the core, the center of our Christian faith revolves around Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? He is the way. He's the truth. He's the absolute truth. So every single root, you're, you're not going to see uh, roots that spread out and have other religions. No, no, no. You're just going to see truth. Our, our tree is planted in absolute truth. Every single root that we have, as you can see, there's a lot of them, right? Every single root that we have is completely grounded in truth. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. I know it sounds redundant. I know it does, but it's just the way it is, right? Jesus is the way. He's the truth. So what are the kinds of fruit that a Christian should bear? This is easy, right? Scripture tells us that when we're grounded in the truth, when we're centered on Christ, when we know and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us exactly what type of fruit we'll bear. Galatians chapter 5 verse 23 says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is, here's the fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and it goes on from there. Basically, if we're a Christian, if we know Jesus first, you've got to understand that. It's not complete this outside moralistic life and get it all right and then you will become a person who is loving. Then you become a person who, who is caring, who has joy, who has peace. No, 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 no. If you want love, if you want peace, if you want joy, if you want patience, the first thing you have to do is get rooted into Jesus Christ, right? And because out of that you will grow and you will begin to bear fruit. And then God begins to change you. And then God begins to, to shape you and mold you. But it's not until after you know Jesus Christ. So kind of the flag that, that we plant, that a Christian plants, is this. And here's the quote. If you're taking notes, I would definitely write this down. Since we can know Jesus, and because Jesus is absolute truth, then absolute truth can be known through the man, Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this one more time. And I want you just to join in every single time I say absolute truth. I want you to join with me. Can you do that? Yeah? Yes? Okay, good. Here we go. Every time I say absolute truth, I want you to join with me. Here we go. Since we can know Jesus, and because Jesus Christ is absolute truth, then absolute truth can be known through the man, Jesus Christ. As a Christian, our worldview is this. We can know truth because truth isn't just an idea. Truth isn't relative. Truth is a person, Jesus Christ. We can know truth, Christianity. So here we see these two different worldviews, competing worldviews, relativism and Christianity. And at the end of the day, you know, it's kind of an open and shut case, to be honest with you. I, I don't know that there's a lot of, a lot of Christians who struggle with, with relativism, right? But here's where the issue lies. Here's what's happened. Here's what's changed. We see Christianity on one side. We see relativism on the other. But now there's a third. And this third is called universalism. And we don't have the time to, to dedicate to everything universal, Right? But I want to show you why this is a problem um, and what's happened because of universalism. First off, let's kind of define it here. Universalism, universalism is a theological doctrine that says all human beings will eventually be saved. 
That's, that's a little bit different than uh, what a Christian would, would say uh, based on Scripture. They, a, a Christian would say that some will be saved and some will not be saved. Right? We talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, scripture says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, off, obviously implying that people who do not call upon the name of the Lord, what? Will not be saved. And yet we see universalism saying that all human beings will eventually be saved. Kind of the flag that they plant is this. A good and loving God could never send people to hell for eternity. And so maybe you've had conversations with, with people. And they would say, listen, listen, I get everything, but I don't understand God. What do you mean? Well, a good and loving God wouldn't send people to hell. And a good and loving God at least wouldn't send people to hell for all of eternity. And, and so what's happened is a new theology has begun to emerge. And, and because Christians don't necessarily know what they believe, and because Christians don't necessarily know why they believe what they believe, over time what has happened is that universalism has started to drip into the mainline vein of Christianity. And so now you have a conversation with, with somebody who, who maybe you go to church with who, who claims to know Jesus Christ and, and now maybe uh, they'll say something like this, well, I just don't believe that God's going to keep people in hell forever. Wait, what? 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 Yeah, I just, I just don't think that. I, I, just, I just think because God is love, God will not allow people to stay in hell for eternity. I, I just don't think when, when Scripture says that um, somebody will die and be you know, in outer darkness from, from Jesus Christ, from God, from heaven forever, that the Bible actually means forever. I think forever actually means like not forever, just like a shorter ever. I, I don't know, right? It's like, well, what are you talking about? We've had a couple influential books, and, 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 I, and listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that these authors are bad writers. I'm not even calling them universalists at all. But I'm saying that some of these principles that are being conveyed through these books and, and being quoted as Christian literature uh, are quite different than, than maybe your Sunday morning material. Uh, case in point, um, here's, a, here's a quote from a book that I finished just a little while ago, uh, a book called Love Wins. It says this, the author Rob Bell says this in, in page 154. He says, John remembers Jesus, the, you know, the disciple John remembers Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is as wide and expansive a claim as a person can make. And here it is, listen, listen and think and listen to this. What he doesn't say, what Jesus doesn't say is how or when or in what manner the mechanism functions that gets people to God through him. He doesn't even state that those coming to the Father through him will even know that they are coming exclusively through him. He simply claims that whatever God is doing in the world to know and redeem and love and restore the world is happening through him. What is he saying there? He's saying that because God is love, even when people die and reject him, God will win them over post-mortem. You understand that, right? So it's not like you think, it's not like scripture would necessarily teach us that when you die, you know, that you would either, either enter into heaven or enter into hell. And then you would be as, as somebody who has rejected God, judged, 
and then cast into the lake of fire. Scripture tells us that death and Hades, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. Christians are not judged at the great white throne of judgment, right? That's reserved for people who've rejected Christ. What he is saying here, though, and what a universalist says is that, yes, when you die, and if you know Jesus, you will go to heaven. But if you die and you don't know Jesus, you will, yes, you will go to hell. You just won't stay there because God has such great love for you. And love wins. Love wins every time. God's love will melt your heart, is what he would say. What a universalist would say. And we want to believe, we want, we, we think that sounds so good, right? We, we were like, oh, wow, that's, yeah. And, then, and if you don't know what you believe, and you don't know why you believe what you, you believe, if you don't understand the character and the nature of God, then what happens is we begin to let this universalism begin to, to drip, 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 drip into our understanding of God himself. I want to read this to you. Look at this slide right here. It says, Universalists teach that all people will eventually be saved through the atonement of Jesus. They maintain that the Bible teaches that God wants all men to be saved, therefore all men will be saved. In this they deny the eternal nature of hell as conscious punishment of the lost. Two of the most prominent verses appealed to by them to support their position are as follows. First one's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. It says this, For this is, a good and accept, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It goes on to say, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. The next verse is 2 Peter chapter 3. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 2. Now listen, if these three verses were all that we had to go on, then the universalist might be able to pro 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 you know, produce a strong argument. But here's the fact. We don't make doctrines out of one, two, or even three verses, but out of the whole counsel of God's word. We know that the universalist teaching cannot be true. For example, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Notice the word everlasting, right? But the righteous into eternal. And here's what's interesting. Listen to this now. The same Greek word, ehienon, is used to describe both punishment and life. If eternal, ehienon, life is indeed eternal, once again, ehienon, then eternal, ehienon, punishment, is also eternal, ehienon, as well. Understand? Mark chapter 3 does the same thing. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 28 says that all sins shall be forgiven. Verse 29 clarifies the statement and flatly says that there is a sin that never has forgiveness. Likewise, consider Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, which says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, compare the usage of forever and ever with, chat with 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In both of these verses, in each verse, the exact same Greek phrase is used. 
forever and ever, forever and ever. They're both the same. You understand that? The same Greek phrases, eis, teos, e hienos, ton, e inon. You can't have it both ways. The fact of the matter is, Jesus' blood covers us so that we can be in God's presence. Without Jesus' atoning blood, we cannot stand before God. Why? Because sin separates us from God. It's that simple. It's not that God hates you. It's not that God's mad at you. It's not that God is repulsed with you. He hates your sin. He's repulsed by your sin. Your sin must be atoned for. And if it's not, then you must be separated from God. And that cannot change after death. Uh, scripture makes that clear. Eternity is quite literally eternity when it comes to Scripture. God doesn't say eternity and then go back and say, well, just kidding, guys. Uh, it's been long enough, right? It's been a trillion years. Like, uh, I'll cut you some slack. No, that would be against the very nature of God. And because we believe in absolute truth, God cannot lie. He cannot lie. He is not deceitful. He is absolute truth. Therefore, he cannot lie. Therefore, he cannot go back on his word. So if Jesus Christ, if God himself says that someday people will enter into eternity with me and someday people will enter into eternal punishment without me, then that is exactly what will happen. We must accept that as truth. We must know why we believe what we believe. Universalism. Lastly, I find this fascinating because Christians have begun to kind of move towards universalism in some ways. I think it's out of a lack of understanding why they believe what they believe or what they believe about what they believe, whatever it might be. But isn't this interesting to come full circle? Look what's happened. We have relativism, we have Christianity. And we have universalism, where once there was a thesis, Christianity, and an antithesis, which would have been relativism. You know, you must know Jesus Christ. He is the only way. On the other side, the antithesis, the antithesis would be like, no, everybody gets to go, whether it's through Jesus or not. We all end up in the same place. Now, all of a sudden, what has happened? As I told you before, we live in a synthetic culture. We live in a day and a time where religion can come along, where a, a thought can come along and, and marry both the thesis and the antithesis into a synthesized truth, a new truth. But listen to me, there is no new truth. There's only an old lie. There's no new truth. Any truth is God's truth, and, and God is not new. He's eternal. He's, he's been around for like a long time, right? There is no new truth. There's only synthetic. There's only synthesized truth. And synthesized truth is never real truth. I want to encourage you just as we, as we close out today and as we close out this series in general, I want to ask you, do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? Just to bow your heads and close your eyes with me if you would to speak with you just real quickly here. In the day and age that we live in, it is more important than ever that you know why you believe what you believe. Because we live in an age of synthetic truth. 
It's more important than ever than you, that you spend time in God's word. It's more important than ever that you spend time in prayer. It's more important than ever that, that you get involved in a sea life group. It's more important than ever that you get in community with other believers, that you're accountable with other mentors. It's, it's never been as important as it is now. Scripture tells us that we have an enemy who is like a roaring lion who is seeking to devour you. And we don't like to think about that. I know we don't, church, but that is the truth. We like to believe that everybody likes us. People don't. We have an enemy. He hates you. That's an absolute truth. Why does he hate you? Because God loves you. That's why. Because God calls you his child. That's why. And he will bring everything against you. He will bring everything against you. But it's so amazing that we serve a risen Savior who says that he will build his church and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. To access that, we have to know what we know. We have to know what we believe. Never more important than now. Never more important than now. Synonym. We all pretty much believe the same thing? No. No, we do not. Thank you for listening to this message from part four of our series, Synonym at Covenant Church. We hope you've been encouraged by what you've heard today. Visit us online at covenantchurch.us where you can invest in life change through giving or find more impactful sermon audio just like this.